ladies and gentlemen, there has been a murder, and you are a suspect. Oh, this is so fabulous. Ain't nothing like getting together with family and having a good meal. I wonder what's for dinner. This is delicious. It was at this moment he knew. This is rotten. Ah! What'd you say? I said eat. <laughs> Drink. Yeah, bro. Got a little Peter Frampton. You got a little Peter do Frampton. You feel like I I do. do. Hopefully not, because probably you're driving or you're working out or you're doing another activity where you usually listen to podcasts. And right now I am about four or five beers in. You shouldn't ever do that while you're doing those activities. Do you drunk listen to podcasts ever? Mm -mm. That's not really a podcast. No, because you're not listening at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we are dedicated, so we still are able to. You can make them like this. Yeah, you can make them like this, but you just can't listen to them like this. I can't. It's, It's one of our many talents. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very talented indeed. You will find out how talented we are because tonight we're talking about what are we talking about? We have finally arrived to our much anticipated Mindhunter episode. Mindhunter. I am so excited. Super stoked to finally get here. Me too. It all started whenever we had this idea to do this podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. CD, my boy here gave me a book and was like, hey, I think this would be just some good reading material. I did. You know, just as inspiration for us to get our little podcast I think the initial idea was I wanted you to have the psychological point of view of how we're going to do a podcast. Like, I wanted to supply all of the factual information and then you be the person who kind of breaks it down psychologically. And I feel like the Mindhunter is a perfect way of, what's the guy's name? It's John Douglas. John Douglas. (laughs) (laughs) It does not matter what his name is. I'm just kidding. John Douglas, mastermind. He's not just a mind hunter. He's a mastermind hunter. Okay. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you that it was a very, very good choice. So when I was reading it, I was really, you know, like you said, getting our vibe going. And yeah, we were just throwing our dicks in the wind and seeing which way the wind would blow. And it so happened. It came upon and pointed towards... Well, a Mindhunter episode. Yeah, well, like, what? that's what I was not expecting. What I was not expecting was for there to be, like, this awesome and amazing connection to mm-hmm. our very own state and great source material for an episode in our ongoing series. I know! South, South Carolina, Carolina Strange and Sinister. I felt like it was good, no. but I don't know. No, man, that was the one. But for this episode, what we're going to do is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to doing the storytelling and Sharif, like I said, doing the more psychological banter, if you will, yeah. with me. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to try to just listen to what Sharif has to say. He's going to take the reins on this. And watch out. Yeah, because I came to him and I was like, man, we've got to do an episode. Yeah, absolutely. After reading this. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So I'm going to get into that. I'm yep. going to get into that later. My nipples are out and ready. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. But first, let's talk about our 
our opening part of every episode. Hey, bon appetit. Our bon appetit. Yeah. What we eat. This is the officially unofficial drink. name of what we do, and it's it's so, the, the bon appetit. Bon appetit. But we're going to reverse the order. Today we're starting with our drink. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. Then we'll get into our eat. So listen, listen here. What's that? Oh, that, my friends, is the sound of magic. Palmetto State's very own. He had to read it. He didn't know. <laughs> Shut up. Can I do that again? <laughs> Palmetto State's very own Hugh Street IPA. And that's how you say it. And first of all, yeah, yes, yeah, let's yeah. get to the pronunciation of Hugh Yeah, yeah. Which is like a. It's French. It's, it's French, but it's yep. like everyone. It's, it's like Huger. It's, it's a Huger. It's a Columbia thing. Oh my God. Anybody. It's every bit, time I say Huger, I hear Huger. I'm like, no, no. UG. And that's how you pronounce you know? it. And if you're a foreigner, you're going to say Huger. And we're going to correct you. Yes, we are. So, But if you are a podcast listener out there, you're going to come to the great state of South Carolina and you're going to be prepared. Yes. Yep. And you'll be one of us. One of us. Google gobble. One of us. Tips. Yes. No, no. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> we did that already. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, go ahead and test this out. It is a IPA. On the front of it, it says to enjoy with food and friends. Based on the reaction I'm getting from my co-host. It's delicious. I absolutely love it. Come on, I man. Just, what? I can lie. Well, are you a fan of IPAs? No. Is the first question. So he's not but a I'll good drink pretty so. much anything. I love full flavored beers. I mm-hmm. love IPAs. Mm-hmm. So let me be the one. Yep. I'm going to wash that down with know. the Corona. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's very hoppy. Why are you acting like you already haven't had six of these already? I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Yeah. Don't lie to them. They know. They yeah. know, Sharif. Yeah, I've, I've tasted it before. Those were practice anyway, ones. Those should were we practices. do? Should we really quickly do our power plugs? No, because we're going to do our eat really quick. Oh, before we get into our power plugs. Oh yeah, we had Winky yeah. Dingy. We had wings, wings and L. Chucky want wingy. Yeah, if you ever come to Columbia, wings and L. I don't know if there's a lot of wing joints around I here. I don't think so. Wings and L. Um, and you know what I really yeah. love about wings and L is they always have these caramelized tips. On their chicken I'm wings. And whenever you, you're crispy. done sucking that delicious chicken meat down your gullet, <laughs> you have just a teensy bit of ever so sweet and spicy teriyaki niblet right on the very end <laughs> that you can just chew on. It's, it's true. It's the experience. Ding, 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 That's ding, it, ding, man. Ding. You, put, you did it. That's it. Yeah. So, um, and the reason we had those wings is because we're celebrating. What are we celebrating? We're Gamecock fans. <gasps> we're celebrating today because we beat Clemson. It's been a long time. Point, dude, it was so great. Oh, oh my gosh. My oh, yes, yeah. yes. Not that we don't love our, our college fans out there. It's yeah, our but we graduated from the University of South Carolina, both media uh, backgrounds. And honestly, today uh, was our day. It just, yeah. It's been such a long time. Yeah, it's almost more of a relief than it is of excitement. It's <laughs> finally, like yeah. finally, finally. Here. But I will definitely be shoving it into the faces of a couple. Uh, friends and colleagues that I have that for the rest of the year. The rest we yeah. have a full year yeah. of this. A full year. It's gonna be so epic. Oh my gosh! All right. Every time some uh, Clemson fan tries to talk to me, I'm just gonna go. Shh! Shut up! Shh! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! 
Shut up, Stop. shut up. I don't listen. <laughs> I don't listen to losers, okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they did it for us for how many years? Was, uh, I think it was eight. It's been eight years. Yeah, it's been about eight now, years. So. Yeah, last seven yeah. games, but we missed one year. But These uh, bragging rights were well-earned, mm-hmm. so shout out to our Indeed. Gamecocks. Indeed. The Gamecocks played their heart out. They did. Can't rattle the rattler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, so <laughs> now that we've done our eat and our drink. the power plugs? It's time to do our power plugs. Go ahead. Power plugs. Oh, thank you. You put some extra sauce on that mm-hmm. one. I liked it today. On, baby. Yes. So here's power what you can do. Here's what you can do. Listen to me. This is your man, Charles. Okay. Right, Usually know. I try to do this in a California voice, but now I'm going to do it in a. I think this is like a New York Jewish style voice. Like I'm not it. sure. Yeah, keep it going. And I don't mean Jewish in the mm-hmm. Kanye West way. I just mean Jewish in the normal, everyday. These are a group of people who follow Hebrew stuff. Exactly. Okay. Um, so first, what we're going to do is you're going to follow us on all of the social media. The delicious social medias we have the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you name it. You name it. And then, and then, and, and then what you're gonna do is you wanna hit up our website. And then what you wanna do is you you wanna give us a, a direct message, uh, email us at eDrinkMurderPodcast at gmail.com. Of course, make sure to visit our website eDrinkMurder.com, and we're gonna have all the fun stuff on there. You're gonna find your hecklers. You're gonna find your hookless. You're gonna find your hawkless. Okay. And <laughs> just want you to know. Just want you to know. I just want you to know you can trust us 100%. We're not anti-Semitic in any way. There you go. All right. <laughs> Boom. Wow. God. Was that okay? That was great. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Was that okay? Uh, that okay. was your best right. power Hey, man. Hey, if they find us, they find us. You're good. Um, <laughs> You're fucking great. Thanks. All right. So All right. we did our let's, eat. Let's we did our drink. Now it's time for us to get into... Go. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was murder. I can't get this voice out of my head now. All right, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you sound like fucking uh, Nat Damon from Departed. Like, <laughs> oh, really? It's a Boston. It's a Boston accent. That's who, that's. Uh, what I'm I getting. can't do any accents. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we have finally arrived. So now let's get started talking about John Douglas, the mine hunter himself. Okay, I'm so excited. So, a little bit about John Douglas. Mm-hmm. You know, he came into prominence with the FBI, right? For cracking some of the most difficult cases and was known for being able to look at a crime scene and then draw reasonable conclusions about a suspect's character based on his analysis. Mm. And I mean, it was down to the detail. Do you think he ever smelt the semen at the crime scenes? And that's how good he was. Yeah, he just like get a sniff of it. I wouldn't put it past him. He'd be like, oh, I know that exactly who <laughs> that is. Caucasian white male, 30 to 35. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it was seriously, it was down to the detail. Like mm-hmm. not only of their age, race, nationality, you know, not just those elements. He was able to profile elements such as a suspect's suit, like the cut of their suit. What? The exact make and model of their cars. Wow. And like down to the year, like he, he, he'd get it exactly right. And he'd even be able to predict things like if they had a speech impediment or not. That's wild. That's wild. Just from looking at a crime scene. So he built a whole team of people that were able to do that. They were known as the behavioral science unit. They later became known as the 
um, investigative support unit. Wasn't he like the founder or like he was on the first behavioral science unit? He was a pioneer okay. for the behavior science unit. Okay. But there was a, a lot of other heavy hitters other than John Douglas. Okay. okay. That really right. kind of like John Douglas. It seemed like it was a small organization, though. It was a small department within right. the FBI. And it was very hush hush because at the time, behavioral science, it was looked at as BS, pun intended. Mm. Right. Because behavioral they, science. But because it was like they was like, it's a bunch of bullshit at this mm. time, you know, any type of psychology was looked at as like kind of soft and the FBI was tough. So a, a lot of his analysis had to be done strictly just in person. Right. There was no written records early on. Interesting. Of anything that they did. It, it came later to be more accepted when they changed the name to the investigative support unit instead mm -hmm. of the behavior science unit. It went in, in ISU. ISU. When they mm -hmm. became the ISU, and that was right after John conducted his series, series of interviews. Ah. And so that's where he really pioneered and really took off their branch of the FBI. And right. we'll also get into what gained their office, their notoriety. Mm -hmm. And they got to the point where they had some clout. You know, it was like, okay. We're going to call in the big guns now. Right. Because they were able to really solve a lot of cases and they had a lot of successes. Yeah. So, by the end, so everybody's calling them. Everybody's calling them. Exactly. <laughs> because so. whenever you have, whenever you're looking for a serial killer, you know, they don't really have much of a motive. So right. we'll, we'll get into a lot of that as well. But, you know, I wanted to first kind of start with John Douglas himself because the book Mindhunter is actually his memoir. So you get a lot of aspects of his upbringing, mm -hmm. his family. And let me tell you one thing, John Douglas is a great storyteller. Mm. Mark Oshaker is someone that co-authored the book, someone that knows what they're doing when it comes to writing full novels. Mm -hmm. um, but still, what I loved about it was how awesome and how great of a storyteller John is. He even described his own storytelling ability as one of his most important talents. And he pointed out the need for detectives to be able to take a bunch of seemingly unrelated information and make it all into a cohesive narrative. Hmm. But anyway, I was reading through some of the notes I wrote. Right. As a side note, in the book I wrote, CD would be a great investigator. Oh, really? Why? I did. Because you're such a good storyteller. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, so, so You might need to team up with our boy. Plus, what I do at one of my other jobs is I investigate. Um, so John Douglas was, was raised in New York. You can't just say New York. I gotta get one of the one of the boroughs. Which one, which one of the boroughs is he in? He sounds like a guy from Queens. Uh, Brooklyn. He's a Brooklyn. Ice Brooklyn. Long Island. Long Island. Is that really part of it? So there, yeah, he was from Long Island. Okay. He was from Long Island. But he is tells, that where the iced tea is from? No. Oh. No. Okay. It's a Long Island iced tea because it mixes together a lot of different liquors at mm. once. And I think Long Island is considered, you know. It's a multicultural like a establishment. There you go, a melting pot. Smelting pot. That's what I think of the idea of, you know, and I'm I'm the mixologist for this podcast. Yeah, so well, we have to connect the drinks somewhere. I am an it. expert on Long Islands. Yeah, clearly. I love Long Island iced teas. I actually had one last night. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they're so when good. When I was uh, singing karaoke. Mm. Mm -hmm. Delighting all my What'd fans. What'd you sing? What was the song you sang? Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're saying? No, no, it wasn't bye bye. It was gone. Yeah. Oh, that's a fire. I gotcha. One. Yeah, I remember yeah, now. Okay. Yeah. That's when Justin Timberlake was in his prime. I he feel was like, killing it at I that time. I feel like he's still killing it, but it more as yes. an actor. He? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he 
talked about his time in college and I like that about him as well. Like he wasn't a straight A student, you know, he was a very average student. He actually ended up dropping out of college. Um, but some of the stories he told were crazy. Like he left a beer on a trunk while driving and driving around with friends. Right. He had a, a stayed few, on. He had a few altercations with, <laughs> with law enforcement. With law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just kind of a rebellious guy. He was kind of rebellious. You yeah. know, he, he never really uh, wanted to go into law enforcement. He actually dropped out of college mm -hmm. and went into the military. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of where he ended up going back to college. And that's how he got his psychology degree. Mm -hmm. But he already had a degree in psychology and some guy just approached him while he was at the gym huh. and was like, hey, have you ever thought about applying to the FBI? <laughs> so and random. It's so <laughs> random. And um, he was like, at this point, he was down and out for cash. He right. really needed a good gig. Mm -hmm. um, he had a degree in psychology. And so he ended up applying and of course they loved him. He was a perfect fit, you know? Right. And so up to that point, he had never given a second thought to law enforcement, but was hired on later that year and started what would become a lifelong journey into the macabre. <laughs> After graduating the FBI Academy, he began working in Detroit the nation's crime capital. Ah, the crime capital of the world, you see? Crime capital of the ah. nation. Of the nation. Oh. Probably of the world, though, because we're American. So <laughs> that's, easy. Yeah. that's an easy yeah. assumption. Not to test any of our international listeners. We just want to let you know. Sorry. Anyway, the nation's crime capital with over 800 murders annually at the time, many of which were tellers and other bank employees uh, as sucks. bank robberies were super rampant at the time. And this kind of like really blew my mind because I used to work at a bank. Right. Yeah. And John Douglas was actually assigned to the reactive crimes unit when he first started with the FBI. But yeah, what I found particularly fascinating about his little stint at the reactive crime unit was that John himself went on to create a system for opening and closing bank branches. Uh -huh that I actually utilized when I was like, when I was reading, I, I'm not going to put this out there on the, on our Are podcast. some like dirty like, down secrets of the banking world? Some of the banking industry. Oh my but, God. But yeah, some of the practices that he actually implemented uh -huh. was how I opened and closed the branch. Wow. And I was crazy. like, this is so extra, but it's kind of cool that yeah, when I read it, I was like, like, it's four years. Wow. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was like, cause a lot Connection of, alert. a lot of people were like dying. <laughs> That's why I had to get out of the branch. Cause I was like, yeah, not going to be me. Did y'all ever have an incident? We had a few incidents. Mm -hmm. So yeah, back to his little stint at the FBI, you know, he started with, with the reactive crimes unit and he saw a lot of action and so i'm sure in detroit yeah yeah he eventually gets approached by the fbi to come out for like a hostage training course ah. and then he goes to none other than quantico which is where he will go on to like really kind of jumpstart his career so he goes to quantico and that's where he gets you know kind of his introduction into behavioral science and that assignment went very well for him and at the ripe young age of 32 mm -hmm. That's he, was, my age. he was offered a permanent position in behavioral science at Quantico. It was here that he utilizes his position as an instructor to actually track down living serial killers and get in their minds leading to a highly esteemed academic study and that kind of gets us into our next portion of this episode where we're talking about what is a mind hunter? Yeah, what is it? Sharif, tell me. Okay, it's basically a nickname for behavioral profiling. Their job is to put themselves in the position of the hunter to the point where they would think, eat, and even sleep 
like these murderers. John would even encourage himself to dream about his investigations to help him crack cases in his sleep. Wow. Yeah. So I got a question. How uh well do they, because obviously I'm I'm sure people are aware there is a Netflix series on this. I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit, but how well did they portray John in the Netflix series? I'm so glad that you brought that up because that show was so well crafted and beautifully executed. I thought both of those characters, our protagonist Holden Ford and Bill Tench were extremely well thought out and beautifully told so many elements elements of John Douglas's story, you know, with Tench's constant struggles with family and at home mm-hmm. and Ford's character progression into this like obsessive douche like prick that, you know, completely throws himself into his work. Right. And also what type of a fucked up person do you have to be to be able to sit down with so many serial killers and have mm-hmm. all these interviews? The Netflix series, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but yeah, it was extremely well done, Good. but it wasn't like a verbatim copy of what you would read in Mindhunter. Right. You know, so again, about what the Mindhunter is, because John Douglas was in the position of being an instructor at the BSU mm-hmm. at the time in Quantico, he was really young and their department was a lot of times local police precincts would be sent to the FBI Quantico and he'd be left to teach them. Right. And a lot of them didn't take him seriously because he was this young cat, mm. you know, so. Was he also like kind of like robotic? Was he like very. He wasn't very robotic, but like uh. I said, he never wanted to get into law enforcement. It mm. just kind of the opportunity presented itself. He just kind of always seemed like a know-it-all type of character in the, in the Netflix series. Well, of- he was definitely chauvinistic. Mm. He was very much into sports Mm. and he used a lot of that. I think that was kind of his start to being interested in psychology because he used a lot of psychological tactics on the field, on the field. He would like to try to make himself look real big and tough. And a lot of times that would make things work in his favor on the football field. Just like the Gamecocks is tonight, baby. So he was a bouncer and he used a lot of psychological tactics as a bouncer ah, very that good. would really help him kind of develop See, I, I might have the body of the bouncer, but I don't have the Aggression. mental capacity for the, yeah, for the, the bouncer. The I just be like, giant. you need to leave now, sir. <laughs> Can I get you some water? You look a little parched. <laughs> some, you know. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to kick you out. <laughs> he was really cut out for this. But like I said, him being an instructor, a lot of times because of the psychological logical nature of everything the students would kind of be like you're full of shit so Mm. he went to his superiors and was like a lot of these serial killers and stuff that we're teaching about are still alive today Mm -hmm. you know why don't i go and talk to him right kind of without asking for permission he kind of just like started just went and did it and it ended up being a, a really big study so his group again was known you know out of the fbi they were known as the bsu uh later to become the investigative supportive unit the isu right they pioneered a study in the early 1980s mm. to better understand criminal behavior and psychology and they actually would actively interview incarcerated killers for an in-depth look behind the curtain so to speak And surprisingly, often, you know, these rapists, murderers, serial killers, what have you, they were willing to speak with the agents conducting the interviews for several reasons. Mm -hmm. Boredom, 
they're locked up. This is somebody that's here to do, just right? giving them attention. Right, but I'm sure a lot of them are just pinching their nipples so oh, fucking there it hard. Is. Oh my god! It mostly came down to rampant narcissism and self-obsession. Right. <laughs> you know, this was, I guess, it's the awful. most fascinating aspect of not only the book for me, but especially of the Mind Hunter series. In this book, there are countless retellings of his up-close and personal interactions with notorious serial killers, from Ed Kemper to Charles Manson. Ooh. Well, I don't know. Charles Manson's not a serial. Well... That's hey, well, maybe maybe that's, we'll get into that one day. Yeah, yeah, we'll cover right. that. You know, so if you have not watched the Mindhunter series, yeah, watch it, man. Let me tell it's you so right good. now, you have to watch it. Yeah, the reenactments of these interviews are absolutely chilling. It's, they're spot on too, aren't they? Spot on. Yeah. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, Oof. especially Ed Kemper, like. <laughs> Ed Kemper gives him like, chills. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was, if you look up a lot of the stuff about Ed Kemper, if you look at his pictures, the likeness and the way that we're re- with the actor able and everything. To recreate. Well, Ed Kemper was, he was one of those rare serial killer types who actually didn't just think he had an IQ, but he actually did have a very high IQ. Oh, yeah. And we'll definitely, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, getting, yeah, you're getting too much oh. into it. You know, we'll get into Ed Kemper. He was one of the major players in this book. They, they really learned a lot. I want to bug Esophagus. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> really just come out. Yeah, that's what I actually wrote. I was like, um, <laughs> we'll just say, I want to fuck your esophagus. No, I said, we're not going to get into the Ed Kemper story now, but let me just tell you, it was a mind fuck. <laughs> it was complete and utter threat fucking. <laughs> but what he, what he spends a larger portion of the book relating is how the behavioral approach to criminal personality profiling and crime analysis was developed. So we're going to start with these interviews. So after he discovered, I don't have a lot of experience. I don't have a lot of reason for these guys to trust me as an instructor. Why don't I go out and actually interview some of these very serial killers that we're talking about and that I'm teaching about? Mm-hmm. You know, so without asking permission, John began his learning experiment by using his connections within the California state penal system mm-hmm. to set up a meeting. And it was at the California State Medical Facility at Vacaville that John conducted his first interview with Ed Kemper. So to start his interview with a cold-blooded killer like Ed Kemper, he shows up and has to sign a waiver absolving the prison system of any responsibility should he be taken hostage and confirm understanding that he will not be bargained for should that happen. So John described Kemper as being enormous up close. Right. He's he said, a giant. Yeah. He said that with a listed IQ of 145, like you kind of mentioned earlier, That's smart. he could easily outsmart them. And when he finally stopped all of his bullshitting, he ended up opening up and talked about himself for hours. Right. I mean, this motherfucker's 6'9", Sharif. Six nine, probably around 400 pounds. Which makes it more terrifying, all the stuff that he did. And he's smart. So they learned that he looked so much like his father that his mother always resented him Mm. and fearful that he might rape his sisters at the age of 10. Oh, that's... She started locking him... So fucked up. So fucked up. She started locking him in a windowless basement, which terrified him. 
and was where he learned his hate for women. What further exasperated this dynamic would later amount to him becoming the co-ed killer right. was the fact that his mother was popular with both faculty and students at the university, yet she treated her own timid son as if he were some kind of a monster at the time. Right. She was closer to the other ones, and she would also be like, you will never get this, you will never get this, Yeah. Right. while pointing at her throat. And he was like, oh, I'll get this. <laughs> I'm just fucking... <laughs> no, but she was really like, you are not good enough for the girls at the university. And, and that's that what kind of led him into becoming the, the co killer. killer. Yeah, right. right. So this initial interview, along with subsequent others, led to some pretty big findings. For one, Kemper admitting to harming the family pets became Keystone and what the book identified would later become known as... The homicidal triad. What is that? You know what that is, CD? No. So these are traits shared by a large portion of violent criminals. Uh-huh. They include. Is this? They include number one, bedwetting, okay. at, an, at an at an age that's normally beyond appropriate for for that. Also, cruelty to small animals. That's fucked up. Yeah. And you know the third keystone um, of the homicidal triad. Let me let me think. Okay, uh, I'm gonna say it's gonna be like it's got to be like hardcore porn. No, it's fire starting. Fire starting. Fire starting. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Arson. So yeah, these are traits that they notice among serial killers that happen at a very early age. That sounds like almost all the things I did at an early they, age. They torture the, the animals. Not to the degree <laughs> of what they would happen. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, finally the biggest takeaway of the interview and countless others conducted by John's Behavioral Science Department is the role of fantasy. Uh-huh. Most sexually based killers escalate from fantasy to reality, often progressing from fucked up porn, right, like what you mentioned, <laughs> to morbid experimentation with animals, to cruelty, to peers. Right. They think about it. They think about it. Think about it. That's all they think about all day, every day. And they try day. it on their, their, their house pet, their, their, their little family cat. They, right. He gets it first. And then they finally, it's just like a building. They build and build, build and build up. and build until finally they will go out and toy with the idea of doing it. Right. And probably not do it the first round or if they do probably fuck it up right so a lot of them um and that's why a lot of these people also probably have prior um Mm -hmm. convictions and stuff like that always yeah so yeah you can start to see a pattern develop which Mm -hmm. was really instrumental in them being able to help out so many different local police identify ongoing crime at the time right because of a lot of these parallels that they were able to draw, mm-hmm. starting with this study that John initiated. One of the biggest things that I like to say now for both for our podcast and for the book is that he does not attempt in any way at excusing what Kemper did, but instead he takes the time to learn about him to better understand and stop all of these active murders. Mm-hmm. So he is very adamant about not using all of these things that he discovered in this interview as a reason for justification. It Mm -hmm. does not begin to justify the things that he did to these people, to all of these victims. You know, so another thing, collecting trophies from a crime scene. Ah. Very much commonplace. Right. John Douglas would later go on to coin the term signature, which describes an individual's unique personal compulsions, which is distinguishable from the traditional term at the time, modus operandi or MO. So the difference here is that signature remains static. 
unlike MO, which is fluid and can change. Oh, can you give me an example? MO is learned behavior and what the perp does to commit a crime. Mm. Like what they go about, like they always strangle, for example. Signature, on the other hand, is what the perp has to do to fulfill himself. Ah. So this eventually would become the core of what they did in the investigative support unit. You know, for an example, their analysis of the Kemper interview allowed them to break down components such as pre and post offense behavior. Mm-hmm. In Kemper's case, the mutilation was post-mortem. Yeah, it's all post. Yes, not intended to inflict punishment or cause any suffering. Okay. <laughs> I mean, definitely just like, I mean, if you say That's like, what I'm saying. It wasn't the suffering so much that Kemper was gotcha, getting off on. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, he just Yeah, we can get into people that really, really dialed it up yeah, on the suffering. Yeah. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not his his deal. Right. Whenever he did any type of mutilation to these women's, to these women's. I am not <laughs> gay no more. Turn around and tell those people. <laughs> I like the woman's. I'm not gay no more. I am delivered. I thought I like women. <laughs> well, yeah, whenever he did any mutilation to women, it was usually post-mortem, mm. like after they were dead. Right. And not intended to inflict punishment or cause suffering. Right. Like a Jeff Dom. Like a or Jeff. A, or a Gaffney Strangler. Or gaff, yeah. Yeah. Uh So as they began to refine their techniques, prison visits became a regular practice. They obtained a grant from the government to further fund their study, and it was at this point the book states criminal investigative analysis came into the modern age. Their interviews became more systematic, Mm -hmm. and they were able to develop a large database. They had those motherfuckers doing scantrons by the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, fill in here if if you got a burner. Like, fill in here if you chop off your mom's head. And here's the question you asked earlier. <laughs> yeah. The study came to be known as the Criminal Personality Research Project. Criminal Personality Research Project. Yep. All right. So this led them to creating distinctions such as organized crime versus disorganized. Also brought deeper meaning to the entire concept of escalation as a pattern of stepping up right. was consistently observed. And ultimately, once the fantasy is lived out in reality, and they kill for the first time, they do it again, often at an increasing frequency. Right. You know, and they found that the first kill is usually in response to some trigger or stressor in their life, mm-hmm. which could be a number of things, but they found the most common reason came down to two reasons. What do you think those are, CD? I feel like a lot of them at the time, and I could be off about this, but losing a job, one bingo okay you killed it other one would be i don't know like a a loved one dying there you go not not exactly right but it came down to two things and that is losing your wife or your girlfriend Uh or losing a job wow yep that's the common triggers for them to kind of get into it so yeah man i got an a plus on that one there you go and (laughs) i'm not even looking at the script at all i promise no i know i'm really not i I was very i got ed kemper's hide up on here but in in the script i said what do you think they are cd because i knew i felt like you were going to hit the nail on the head oh yeah because i'm a serial killer (laughs) no you're (laughs) no you're a great investigator okay which toes the line between almost a serial well minus the whole losing the girlfriend thing because 
because it's probably part of it, but that's how most divorces happen is the man usually loses his job. Yep. I can see that. Yep. In 1983, Don's behavioral science team had successfully completed a detailed study of 36 individuals, which collected data from 118 of their victims as well. Mm-hmm. And in 1988, they expanded their conclusions in a book titled Sexual Homicide, Patterns and Motives. Hmm. So at this point, all of their studies and information were immediately put to practical use by John Douglas and other criminal profilers. Because of all the attention they were receiving, the FBI director at the time finally gave the BSU official approval to offer psychological profiling consultation. Right, they in just went all in. Yeah. Like, they got the green light to be like, okay, we can see that what you're doing is very useful and it can fucking help us out right now with solving crime. So they became overwhelmed with requests. You know, one such instance described in the book provides a pretty good framework for how criminal profiles operate. And it's in the 1979 brutal murder of 26-year-old Francine Elvison, Mm. who was a teacher for handicapped children in the Bronx. Damn. Why is it always the good ones? It's always the good ones. Mm. Her parental roommate, yes, Francine, still lives with her mom. She became instantly alarmed when her neighbor brought her daughter's wallet by, saying they had found it on the stairwell. The NYPD came upon Francine's nude body, severely beaten by blunt force trauma with the jaw, nose, and cheeks having been fractured. She was left spread eagle and tied with her own belt and nylon stockings around the wrist and ankles. Where was this at? It was in the Bronx. Okay along with further mutilations of the body, an umbrella and pin were forced into her vagina and a comb placed in her pubic hair. A comb? A comb. Just randomly thrown in. Like a a fro pick? Right. Rest in peace, Francine Elvison. That's a horrible way to go and a very degrading way to die. That's awful. Absolutely awful. You know, it reminds me of an Eminem song. Sorry. Thank you. I yeah. thought I, I thought a lot of Eminem... <laughs> I, to be honest, a lot of this book really kind of messed my whole... Like, I could not listen to any true crime after reading this book for, like, three months. Ugh. I was only listening to... Uh, Teletubbies. No podcast at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> just just happy music because um, it really was hard to wash a lot of this out of my mind. Mm-hmm. But it really made me think that Eminem must have used some of this book. Oh, definitely. Um, so because he talks about uh, stuck an umbrella up in uh, something I forgot. Fuck, Fuck you with an umbrella and opened up what shit's inside it. Oh, God, that's so fucked up. Right. So, yeah, there was an umbrella and a pen forced into her vagina. A, comb a pen, like a, a writing pen? Right. The killer wrote on the body, Fuck you. You can't stop me. And he also defecated near the body and <laughs> covered the excrement with some clothing. Covered it with clothing? Yeah. Ugh. 
So yeah, he like took a big dump. What next, was this next, guy's fucking name? <laughs> the serial shitter. So, it, like, <laughs> so yeah, I think this was a great example of criminal profiling. So I'm gonna get into like kind of what John Douglas's team did when they came onto this. John, up. John shows up and he's like, "All right, he's got yellow coin in the feces. He's gonna be. <laughs> he's gonna be from Indiana." And he's, right, right. Because of this type of corn, they only they only have this type of corn in Indiana. Right. He's gonna. He's gonna have two freckles on his upper butt cheek and <laughs> God, God you're uh, using that yeah. accent again I love it I know okay. John, the departed I, the departed but, accent yeah, well it's not the departed it's 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 the departed but anyway <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love you man alright so Francine was never raped but there was semen found in the crime scene cops were baffled because although they had literally so much shit on this guy, uh-huh. including his DNA, forensic science. But DNA in the seventies is, is like nothing. Tell us, tell yeah. us, yeah, preach it. Forensic science had yet to truly develop at this time. Right. So they were desperate to crack this case fast. So they reached They're out, like putting all, all this shit in like a. Um, and they were like, call the FBI because fuck this. Right. Yeah. They reached out to the FBI. They reached out to Quantico for help. All right. So after reviewing the crime scene, John suggested the cops seek an average looking disheveled white male aged 25 to 30 that's unemployed and lives within half a mile of the crime scene. Ah. He would be nocturnal, okay. single with no close friends. He also concluded that this was his first murder, but if not caught, it wouldn't be his last. Mm -hmm. He also advised them that they won't have to go very far to find him. In fact, he predicted they probably already talked to the guy. Holy shit. That's Which is something that else is, somebody, is like John Douglas came up to me and said that like you probably talked to the killer, you know, the guy who just did the umbrella shit thing. Oh god, that's that just like gives me chills. So now even John admits that a good profiler has to have some level of psychic ability. Oh, so he's got he, he's he's in tune with the the psychic world, he has, eh? He has to be, which oh I gosh. if you read a lot of these profilers, it's just it's kind of the same way. It's like, well, like we how said, the fuck did you come up with it? Yeah, I feel like he probably like we did, he got a boner and figured out which way which the way wind the was wind going. Yeah. But he had a very sensitive boner. He was like, we'll go this way. We'll go this way. (laughs) Does he, he really thinks he has psychic abilities? He said it takes some, some level of psychic ability. Oh my God. He admits that. But let's look at some of the clues that led John to draw his professional conclusions. First. Was I right on the corn? (laughs) <laughs> you hit the nail right on the corner. Oh, I, I hit the corn on the cop. All right. <laughs> All right. First, Sorry. everything used in the attack belonged to the victim. Mm. So without the killer. What a dumbass. Not really. Don't yeah. say that. Okay. Because this. this I is guess, kind of like how you said, forensics, forensic stuff hasn't started yet. So you could kind of like shit sperm and use your own umbrellas for stuff back well, then. Well, it wasn't that. It wasn't mm. that. It was really more of. Oftentimes, killing is impulsive Mm. for these killers. Sometimes it happens in this way. So it was very good for his further studies, but everything used in the attack belonged to the victim. So without the killer bringing anything with him, it would be reasonable to assume he had no intention of committing the crime. Since no screams were reported, he assumed she must have recognized the person Mm -hmm. and that he either worked there or lived in the area. 
Mackey actually believed him to be white because these types of crimes rarely cross racial lines. Right. And he also noted that he had seldom, if ever, seen this type of mutilation from a black subject. Mm-hmm. Black people don't do that type of shit. Oh, wow. Okay. Also, the disorganized <laughs> nature of the crime appeared to be done by a first-timer. The penetration of the victim, which acted as sexual substitution, uh-huh. and the masturbation of the crime scene pointed to the fact that this guy was immature and sexually inadequate. Uh-huh. Like he wanted to Small be able, dick. He wanted to be able to like rape her, but he couldn't even do that. Uh, okay. So he fucking jabbed her in the vagina with the umbrella uh, and then jacked off over the crime scene because uh, he's a loser. But it pointed to the fact that this guy was immature and sexually inadequate. He also concluded by the mutilation that the perp would not be gainfully employed as he would have serious psychiatric problems. Probably because as soon as serious he has the problems. shit, he, has, he just goes right where he is, well, apparently. Listen, listen, and would not be able to live on his own. Mm-hmm. The position of the body meant to further degrade the victim and reflected the subject's attitude towards women. The covering of the victim's face acted to depersonalize the act. Not that he felt guilty, but he looked at her as an inanimate object. Right. And it wasn't anything personal in John's conclusion. The doo-doo left behind, the killer John concluded would have been accidental and due to some combination of A, bad nerves. A, this is the first time killing somebody. Yeah. You know, he's but shat he himself. himself. But also being there a long time, and, and you know, he was there a long time to have to do this crime. He might have had to go. Um, but also it was possible side effects of some psychiatric medication that he was on. Ah, okay. All right. So really drawing very logical conclusions from this crime scene that me, myself, or you probably just looking at this wouldn't have come up with. Right, right. And he gets very good at this. His whole office does. They ended up circling back over their notes and went back to arrest 31-year-old Carmine Calibro, who fit John's description almost to a T. Wow. The unemployed actor, (laughs) Carmine, was unmarried, lived in Francine's building on the same floor with his father, had severe depression issues, he ended up getting charged and convicted with life imprisonment after his dental records were able to be matched up with bite marks on Francine's body. And while in prison, he wrote to Quantico several times, reasserting his innocence, saying that he was unfairly convicted on the bite mark evidence. He even had all of his teeth removed so that they could, quote, never accuse him again. I imagine that didn't work out, though. <laughs> so now he's just no, toothless. He, he, he definitely was toothless and convicted. Yeah. You know? But so at this point, the BSU or the ISU at this point is now gaining more footing within the world of law enforcement. Analysis of these crimes requires walking in the shoes of both the offender and the victim. So an important aspect of this is called victimology, which is the study to help identify why was this victim selected and how were they murdered? Mm -hmm. So they essentially had to recreate the crime scene in their head. They had to be able to feel the victim's fear Mm -hmm. and to help embody this I want to discuss a recording mentioned in the book that John actually plays for the actor, Scott Glenn, that plays Jack Crawford in The Silence of the Lambs. To prepare for the role, he experienced a tape recording 
that many other members of the FBI have to experience when they are at Quantico. This is something that they use for a lot of the. Oh, I know what this Quantico. is. This is the uh, the toolbox killers. You got it. Yeah, you got it. It is the tape recording of 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Lefford being tortured to death in the back of a van by Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who would later become known as the Toolbox Killers. Mm -hmm. Scott Glenn wept as he listened and reevaluated his stance on the death penalty, later becoming a staunch defender of it since since listening to it. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, I, have you read the, the transcript? I read it. Ugh. It was one of the things that really kind of made me put this book down for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's in the book? The transcript it's, is in the book? Uh, no, the transcript is not in the book. Oh, okay. Mm, yeah. Absolutely not. You just not. looked it up? Absolutely yeah, I looked not. it up, too. But because it is mentioned in the book, I did end up looking it up. Yeah, don't look that up, people, unless if you... It will make you cry yourself to sleep. It's mm. fucking horrible. So at this point, you know, after the BSU started gaining more traction, his office, mm -hmm. John recounts one of his most significant cases that ultimately gained even more credibility for the FBI and the criminal psychology approach. And it's from... 1979 through 81, there was a streak of about 29 murders, and they all appeared to be linked. All of the victims were black, and because the majority of them were young, many children, the community dubbed the killing spree the Atlanta Child Murders. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Atlanta Child Murders. The Atlanta Child Murders. So this mm. was like probably the most significant case right. of John Douglas's career. Mm -hmm. He really kind of gained notoriety mm -hmm. um, here in this case. So the parents of the missing children announced the formation of the committee to stop children's murders, which you see a little bit out of that in the Netflix series, Holden Ford is under a lot of scrutiny by these moms mm -hmm. in that series. I imagine John Douglas had to deal with a lot from these mm -hmm. victims' mothers and family members. You can imagine the city was gripped in terror. How many kids? A streak of 29 murders. 29? 29. 29, yep. Like, this wasn't supposed to be happening in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. The bustling metropolis of the New South, yeah. which boasted a black mayor and black public safety commissioner at right. the time. This mayor, Maynard Jackson, he actually ended up asking the White House for help particularly to have the FBI conduct a major investigation, mm -hmm. which they weren't involved yet because none of these murders crossed state lines. It was all in Atlanta. Within, a, within yeah. the state. Interesting. Once the FBI began their investigation, there was, of course, a media frenzy. Every newspaper across the country featured a gallery of young black faces and conspiracies began to stir regarding black genocide and whether the KKK or Nazis were involved. Which kind of makes sense when you think about it. It wouldn't be hard to, like I like the phrase you used, New South. They're boasting a black mayor. There's a lot of stuff going good for the black community in Atlanta at the time, you could say. And who gets mad at that? It's just like, you know, racists. So, so you, know, you know, that kind of makes sense, I John guess conclusions kind of refutes that but I'm gonna shortly here get into where people still maintain the validity of what you're saying right now mm -hmm. so Douglas reported that he believed the murder was someone black not white as the overwhelming majority of serial killers never hunt outside of their own race pointing out that serial murder is a personal crime mm -hmm. not a political one 
He also theorized that in order to have access to such a large number of black children, the Atlanta killer would need access to the black community without arising any uh, suspicion. Any right? That guess that, that makes a lot more sense. I have to give it to him. That but does. I want to I want to just real quick say didn't we kind of define? I think whenever we were talking about the bigums, we came to the conclusion that a lot of these lynch mobs and lynches were indeed also they could be considered serial killers I love that but that's definitely that. political yeah I would say yeah you know what I'm saying I mean I would say that's more political than personal as to what you were saying earlier so I love that you brought that to our attention because yeah. to me John Douglas was super invested which gave him I think sometimes tunnel vision mm. you know into these crimes and there was a little bit of a gray area there when it comes to political hate crimes and the history of serial murders mm. gotcha so right. I love that you tie that in and you really kind of struck the vein of a lot of what the attitude was at the time and even maybe kind of the conclusion I drew from this portion of the book mm. so by late May of 1981 Many of the dead bodies linked to the case have been recovered somewhere near the Chattahoochee River. Mm -hmm. So investigators began staking out bridges in that mm -hmm. area. Smart. The book spends a significant amount of time building up a criminal profile for the killer and going over the many details of this case. But everything comes to a head on May 22nd of 1981 when... I just heard a loud splash. ...was exclaimed over a walkie-talkie by a police academic recruit, curly-haired, 23-year-old Wayne Bertram Williams, driving a 1970 Chevy station wagon, was immediately followed and pulled over by stakeout officers. Mm -hmm. The bodies of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter and 21-year-old Jimmy Payne were found nearby, and Williams, who matched the criminal profile, officially became a suspect. Right. There was mounting evidence against Williams, including matching fibers from Williams' car and dog to both Carter and Payne's bodies. He's fucked. And although he maintained a calm demeanor throughout the trial, Douglas was able to utilize his criminal profiling techniques to essentially coax Williams to break. By keeping Williams on the stand, applying pressure and scrutinizing every aspect of his life. Oh, he went on the stand during his trial? He did. Oh, which man. Was, I which wish was something I was a that, fly on the wall for that. It's funny, but that's something that that uh, John Douglas predicted that he would be very Dude. adamant about doing. Wow. And he used that he used that against them. Wow. He knew he was going to take the stand. <laughs> they eventually catch him off guard and he goes absolutely ballistic, <laughs> ranting about FBI goons and calling the prosecutor a fool. On February 27, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, Wayne's trial ended with a guilty verdict for both murders. He was never convicted of the rest of the murders, but the local police still maintain that he was responsible. Yeah, I think he definitely was. Counter to what you were saying, CD, there is so much more we could get into about the murders, particularly regarding the speculation of Wayne's innocence. I have to admit that for me, I felt a little bit of a sense of unease at this point in the book mm -hmm. after coming to the conclusion of this particular case. You know, many Atlanta residents and relatives of the victims believe Wayne was merely a convenient police scapegoat. Mm. And filmmakers Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright actually compiled research and interviews to create a 10 episode podcast titled Atlanta Monster, which really digs into this case. 
and Albright himself said the families of the victims are the ones saying they don't think he did it. They don't feel like their child was ever actually given justice. Maybe we can even eventually do a full episode on this case because there is so much more to unpack. But either way, wrapping up this case earned John and his colleagues instant credibility throughout the law enforcement community worldwide. All right. Yeah. So the rest of the book continues to go over other important cases and further explains elements of criminal profiling. You know, it also gives more interesting points about John Douglas's life and more about the progression of behavioral science. But I'm going to leave the rest of it for our viewers to explore for themselves. Um, <laughs> there's a lot here. It's just so much. <laughs> and we're, there's a lot of stuff we, we haven't, we we haven't even, even talked about in the script. And what's funny is uh, this book went from being, you know, very light and humorous to also being sobering and deeply disturbing. Right. Also frustrating for me. I found myself very frustrated that mm. these type of people even exist. Yeah. And the things that they did to these victims, it was just like, how could you? And how could, how could these families recover? Well, they from, don't have any that? empathy, you know, it's, it, they don't, uh, and you do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But although Mindhunter provides us a rare gaze from the other side, so to speak, mm-hmm. one point John hammers throughout the book is that most disturbed individuals understand the difference between right and wrong. Well before any of these crimes are committed. Mm-hmm. They're not innocent They're at not. all. And I really love that point. That yeah. Although he does take the time to understand them. There are some fucked up individuals, but they are guilty as shit. They know the fundamental difference between right and wrong. Right. So before we call it quits, I want to actually get into the story behind some of the most heinous serial killers in this entire novel. Uh-huh. John Douglas is one of his first, I guess, initial exposures to bizarre murder cases started with... Can Edward Gein. Ed Gein? Ed Gein. He talked to Ed Gein? He didn't talk to Ed Gein, Uh. but whenever he went to Quantico for the first time, that was one of the first crime scenes. That is a fascinating one. He saw the the pictures and everything. Right, right. So that's kind of like opened his door to law enforcement. So Mm -hmm. for those that don't know, old Ed was this wonderfully sadistic, grave robbing bastard. Right. And he had a particular interest in human skin and would wear other people's skin draped across his own body. In addition to adorning a tailor's dummy in various home furnishing as well, uh, apparently, you know, instead of getting a sex change operation, which was immediately frowned upon at the time, old Ed settled for the next best thing. And what do you think that is, CD? Oh, I know what it is. Why don't you just tell him? Creating a woman meat suit instead. (laughs) So he's definitely the inspiration behind your your, uh, Buffalo Bill from Signs of the Lambs, Mm -hmm. Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I would say it's it's a mixture of a couple serial killers in there, but definitely Ed Gein definitely has a very unique, artistic, disgusting (laughs) signature. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the next serial killer we'll go to is Ed Kemper which we mentioned earlier in the Mm -hmm. book but I want to go in a little bit more detail here because it was the very first serial killer that he did interview so he was born December 18th 1948 in Burbank California and first of all I would just like to say what the fuck is up with Callie 
Cali? California. What's wrong with Cali? Like, sheesh. There are so many weirdos in this state. Yeah. But yeah, this guy grew up with two younger sisters in a dysfunctional family. Right. And after constantly fighting his parents, split, and his mom eventually ended up sending Oled, the third to go live with his father. I'm a third. You are. (laughs) To go live with his father. And he started exhibiting some disturbing behavior. And not just any disturbing. I mean, I forgot. I mean, the dismembering of two family cats and playing death games with his sisters. Death games? He didn't like it at all at his dad's, so he ran away. And since that didn't work out, his mother sent him to live with his grandparents. Paternal grandparents. Yeah. At this point, his mother didn't want anything to do with him. Right. It's kind of sad, but at the same time, you are definitely about to see why she was so sure about keeping her distance. Poor Ed was miserably bored at his grandparents. One August afternoon in 1963, his grandmother insisted he stay home and help with doing the chores. Instead of allowing him to accompany his grandpa, whom he liked better, into the fields, Ed decided at this moment that he had had enough. The tall, hulking 14-year-old boy shot his grandmother with a 22 caliber rifle, then Bam. stabbed her body repeatedly. Ugh. Knowing that old Grandpa Ed would not take too kindly to what he just did, he waited for the old-timer to return home, then he shot him too. When later questioned by the police, he shrugged and simply replied, I just wondered how it would feel to shoot grandma. <laughs> fucked up. He admitted to a... I ho- can hear Ed Kemper's voice saying that too, which right? is the fucked up thing. But yeah, he was admitted to the hospital for the criminally insane, but for some godforsaken reason, they released him six years later at the age of 21 and placed him in the custody of none other than his mother, mm-hmm. who worked at the University of California. Yep. So Ed, who was 6'9 and 300 pounds at this time, held odd jobs and played it cool for a couple of years, but began murdering again in 1972 when he picked up two college roommates, stabbed them both to death, took their bodies home to his mother's house where he took Polaroids, dissected them, played with various organs, then buried the bodies. His next victim was high school student Aiko Ku, whom he suffocated then sexually assaulted her corpse and brought it home for dissection. The next morning, he showed up to a scheduled psychiatric evaluation with poor little Miss Ku's head in the trunk of his car, Uh. yet he still managed to convince the psychiatrist to declare him no longer a threat to himself or others. They even went on to recommend that his juvenile record be sealed. (laughs) God. So he went on to continue targeting young female collegiates and became known as the co-ed killer. Right. You know, I mentioned early how fucked up people are in the state of Cali. Well, Santa Cruz in particular was in deep threat right now because it also boasted the astonishing title at this time of serial murder capital of the world. <laughs> and while Kemper was active and in the same city that he was committing these atrocities, there were two other active serial murders at the time. You know, the book stated that almost every week there were outrages taking place. So needless to say, Santa Cruz is gripped with fear right now, and his compulsion to kill was escalating at an alarming rate, even for him. And in less than nine months since starting to kill again, 
He has already increased his body count by six. Whew. On Easter weekend of 1973, as his mother slept, he quietly stood over her bed and watched her for hours until he gathered up the courage. Just watched her for hours while she was sleeping. It's yes. so creepy. It's giving nightmares. Yeah. But he finally gathered up the courage to extend a claw hammer above his head as high as he could and sent it crashing down onto his mother's head, Bam. attacking her repeatedly until she died. Mm -hmm. He then decapitated her her headless corpse and as a final I guess you could say love letter love letter oh god he performed oral sex on the decapitated head and then he cut out his mother's larynx and fed it down the garbage disposal what a larynx sounds like when it's in a garbage disposal this is what he said but it seemed appropriate the way she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. And as a side note, apparently when he went to turn on the switch, the disposal jammed uh -huh. and threw the blood in the voice box back out at her. <laughs> and he said it was like, even when she was dead, she was still bitching at me. I couldn't get her to shut up. Damn, that's so fucking cold. Yeah, but uh. it, it also brought me again back to the likeness that they recreated with Ed Kemper. Oh, where he like describes it well. He's, he like talks about like buttholes and stuff. He's like, you know, a butthole just swallows it up, but the, <laughs> the larynx just pushes the cancer and there's not a lot It's hard. I'm just like, oh to God, to. this is gross. You know, All right. he then called and invited his mom's best friend over right. for a special dinner. If you're having a special dinner, come on over. Yeah. When she arrived, he clubbed her and strangled her and then cut off her head. He left the body in his own bed and slept peacefully in his mom's bed that mm -hmm. night before turning himself in. Right. Well, he did travel like thousands of miles and right? Yeah. 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 Anyway. He, he ends up yeah. turning himself in because he thought that it would be like a big deal, but it was like days went by and no one discovered it. So he had a call and kind of like confessed to it and ended up turning himself in. Right. But yeah, he also interviews Charles Manson. Right. Which was also brought to life in an amazing way on screen on the TV show. A little guy, Charles Manson. Yeah. yeah. For those who don't know, he was a cult leader. And on the night of August 9th, 1969, four Manson family members viciously murdered movie star Sharon Tate and four of her guests. Right. And businessman Lino LaBianca and his wife were also murdered by members of Manson's cult. Although Manson himself did not participate in these murders, he was present. We could also do an episode on the Manson cult or even the more noteworthy Jonestown I like cult Jonestown, but Jim know, Jones. But what's better than one, too? So Richard Speck was also interviewed by John. Richard Speck. I don't know if you know about Richard Speck. I don't but know Richard Speck. He murdered eight nurses in South Ooh. Chicago town house in 1966. I, I listened to an episode of My Favorite Murder on this, and it was uh -huh. definitely stuck out in my mind. Intending to commit burglary for money to get out of town. Right. After rounding up five women in the house and eventually four more who return home. Speck apparently changed his mind and engaged in a frenzy of rape, strangling, All? stabbings, All and slashing. Nine women? Of nine, yeah. At one time? At one time. Oh my God. Yeah, but one of them played dead and got away. Oh. Yep. And so another guy that was interviewed, Jerry Brudos, 
you know, this guy was quick. Give me your stilettos. Uh, this guy had a major shoe finish. Yeah. He was also interviewed by John and he was born in South Dakota in 1939. And one day as a young boy around five years old, he stumbled upon a pair of shiny heels mm-hmm. at a local dump. Mom, I got to have those. I got to stick them up my piss hole. Sorry. <laughs> bad. Intrigued, he carried them home and tried them on. Right. His mother was furious when she found her son modeling them around, and she immediately... I did that. I've tried on stilettos before. You ever tried on st- stilettos when you were young? I'm sure I have. I mean, yeah. it's kind of natural, but... Try them on, This yeah. is where it went south for him. She immediately tells him to get rid of them. Right. He, of course, keeps them hidden from her until she eventually finds out, and she promptly took them away but this time she burned them and proceeded to severely punish him. No! Now, I wish I could say that it ended developing just the shoe fetish, but it definitely doesn't. Fetish, and that's, Which is totally fine. If you have a shoe fetish, know, we're right. not... I wish it would have ended you're, there. You're totally fine. Just but don't kill people. Needless to say, that was not the case. Right. So by the time he was 16, he was regularly breaking into neighborhood homes to steal women's shoes. And eventually that led to stealing other things, you know, mm. like women's underwear, lingerie, and all of their lacy panties. He, of course, would save these delicious items for later. Trophies! So he could try them on. And he continued to do this throughout high school and college, and even was arrested during this time for assaulting a young lady by luring her into his vehicle, then trying to force her to get naked. Mm. He eventually settles down and gets married in 1968 and decides to turn his life over to Buddhism and make peace with the world. Just kidding. He totally kept breaking into homes. And by this time, he was even sometimes confronting the women he found and choking them until they were unconscious. In 1968, now a father of two, a 19-year-old girl named Linda Slauson happened to ring the doorbell she was selling encyclopedias family right? home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She had an appointment to sell encyclopedias and had unfortunately came to the wrong house by mistake. It ended up being a mistake that would cost the ultimate price because he seized this moment and dragged his poor young lady into his basement only to bludgeon and strangle her. Once he was sure she was dead, he undressed her and tried various items from his collection of outfits on the corpse. After disposing of the body in the Willamette River, he began to continue killing women in this way, often cutting off the left foot and placing it in one of his prized shoes. He would also cut off breasts and make plastic molds of them. And he was eventually caught when police received statements from several co-eds and they stalked one of his known rendezvous points. Now you may remember this guy as the cat from Mindhunter when Agent Ford brings him a leather shoe, you know, I guess as a way to break the ice before the interview. Uh You know, but once they finally give it to him, he immediately goes into the corner of the room and starts to masturbate with it. It later came out that his wife was absolutely scared of him, and he would force her to dress up in various items from his collection and would take pictures, which made her really uncomfortable, as you can imagine. And she was apparently forbidden from going anywhere near the freezer in the garage, which he kept locked. And if she needed anything out to cook for dinner, you better believe that sick old Jerry absolutely demanded that she ask him what she needed and let him bring it to her because it was in this very garage that he was storing all of his favorite body parts. 
So Chris. he goes over Mont Rissell. He was a person that murdered five women in Virginia as a teenager. Reason why he brought up Mont Rissell because Mont Rissell brought up the fact that the son of Sam was his greatest inspiration. So we go into a very much detailed of the son of Sam, which was also the inspiration for the BTK killer, if you all don't know that. Mm -hmm. The son of Sam began his reign of terror in New York City and was known for writing to the newspaper while he was active. Described as more of an assassin type than a typical serial killer, over the course of almost exactly one year, July 76 through 77, six young men and women were killed and more were wounded. All parked in the lover's lane, all shot in cars with a powerful handgun. He admits to Agent Douglas that earlier in his life, he started over 2,000 fires in Brooklyn, Queens area and said that he would masturbate Fire. to the fires. I'll mm -hmm. take the homicidal triad for 500 hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so um, in peace. from there Sorry. in the book, he moves on to another fairly well-known case, the Toolbox Killers, right. which we mentioned earlier. You know, John Douglas once described Lawrence Bittaker, which was one of the Toolbox Killers, as the most disturbed individual for whom he has it's the ever- It's fucked up case, I'm pretty sure. I think it is. Yeah. For whom he has ever created a criminal profile. Bittaker and Roy Norris, also known as the Toolbox Killers, committed the kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder of five teenage girls in Southern California over a five-month period in 79. Some of the bodies of the disappeared girls were never recovered. Norris and Bittaker became known as the Toolbox Killers because the majority of instruments used to torture and murder their victims were items normally stored inside a household toolbox like pliers, ice picks, and sledgehammers. Particularly contributing to the killer's infamy, especially Bittaker's, is an audio tape that the pair had created mm -hmm. of the abuse and torment of their final victim, Shirley. Shirley was just 16 years old when she was abducted by the evil pair. The audio tape of her torture, considered to be one of the most disturbing ever, was the most damning evidence presented at Bittaker's trial. It had been found inside of Bittaker's van. Prosecutor Stephen Kay forewarned the jury, for those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. God, can you imagine having to be a juror on that case? It's just like, these people are fucking up your life now. You right, know? right. And you know, yeah. more than 100 people were present in the courtroom as the tape was played, and many members of both the jury and the audience wept openly upon hearing the contents, with several members of the audience either burying their heads in their hands, dabbing tears from their eyes, or rushing out of the courtroom before the tape was even finished. Mm -hmm. Some had run out to vomit. Stephen Kay was reduced to tears and walked out of the courtroom. Kay stated to the reporters gathered outside of the courtroom. Everybody who's heard that tape has had it affect their lives. I just picture those girls, how alone they were when they died. Bittaker laughed in court as the tape was being played. He considered the contents to be quote unquote real funny. Detective Paul Bynum, the chief investigator involved in catching Bittaker and Norris, committed suicide years after the two were found guilty. God damn. In his suicide note, he outlined that one of his main reasons was his fear of the two ever being released from jail. Even his accomplice, Roy Norris said, we've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that 
no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something so vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, there's just no possible way that you not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than 60 seconds of it. In the closing argument delivered by the prosecution, Kay apologized to the jury that he was only asking for the death penalty, adding that he wished that the law permitted him to request that same suffering be inflicted upon Bitteker that he had inflicted upon his victims. And yeah, there are a lot of other notorious serial killers throughout the book. You know, I just kind of wanted to go over a few of them. Yeah. There's a lot more to unpack. We really only got through about half of As the long book. as we don't have to do a toolbox killer episode, I think we're good. There, I don't think I have the <laughs> Maybe for one that. day, but as of right yeah. now, that's a big, nah, I don't want to read that ever again. Right. Yeah. I mean, one more killer, of course, is BTK. BTK was very significant oh, yeah. in... Um, Buying torture kill. Yeah. Ugh. He was very significant in the series, but also in the book, because when he first wrote the book, mm-hmm. uh, the BTK was still at, right. at large. Right. Oh, yeah. So active. Yeah. And so uh, I read like the 20th anniversary of the book. So in the introduction, he talked about a lot of the oh, serial nice. killers that he mentioned that were still at large that had been captured. And, nice. and BTK was one of the big ones. Awesome. So other than the BTK, after I've put you through. I guess a lot. Um, you're probably asking yourself, <laughs> why the fuck did you put us through all of this, Sharif? Right. And and the reason behind all of that was one of the serial killers that John alluded to towards the end of the book, whenever he was talking about solving the case and cracking the case, mm-hmm. I came upon the name of a person that I know personally. Who? Well, I can say we're acquainted. Sheriff James Metz. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So it just blew my mind because... You know him personally? I know him personally because (laughs) one of my previous roles that I worked in, he would frequent um, the establishment and I I would see him maybe two or three times a week. So we came to develop a personal relationship. So, Uh like, it really struck to me because I'm like, dang, I know this person and they're working with John Douglas on a case. And so it kind of segues into our next episode. Right, Um, because we're going to talk about when John Douglas makes his way down on to Columbia, South Carolina for our Mindhunter episode part two. Part two. We're going to be talking about Larry Jean Bell and that sick motherfucker, man. So yeah, it was a, a huge chapter in the book. It, it's crazy that, you know, John Douglas and the Mindhunter, it all connects and it's going to play right into our South Carolina strange, strange and sinister thing. hands right here. Which is even more cool about that is just this very year, John Douglas wrote a book. Mm-hmm. About right his experience when so. a killer calls. <laughs> it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. So I'm sorry for putting you through all of that. I loved it. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. I thought it was absolutely great. And like I said, we might go into detail about some of these serial killers later down the road. But for right now, I think you handled that perfectly, Sharif. Where we just kind of hit some major points of how John Douglas created essentially a database for the the ISU, formerly the BSU, at the FBI and that was great. Awesome. Yeah, awesome yeah. job. So thanks for tuning in. Oh yeah. You know, we definitely appreciate y'all and all the support and all the awesome feedback that we've been getting. Yeah. I thought it'd be a good to shout out SNKT. Oh. SNKT is our, it's our leading sponsor right now. It is our leading sponsor <laughs> and we definitely would be featuring yeah. SNKT on one of our episodes. Let's see, how can we forward people to SNKT? SNKT.com. S and K T 
Coffee.com. Right. They have tea and coffee. Yeah. If you like tea and coffee, definitely and check coffee. them out. It has the, some of the best flavors, and I could go on all day about how amazing their loose leaf tea is. But yeah, that's one of yeah. our sponsors. So The best thing is, is if you're not a tea drinker, they have the, the stuff to kind of get you started right off the bat. Right off the you bat. know what I'm saying? Right off the bat. And it's a great way to just kind of relax, or if you're trying to stay up, they got teas for that too. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They got teas for everything. They got coffee. They got all the good stuff. So, all right. yeah. That was our Mindhunter episode. Yeah. I've been looking forward to us doing I know, this for I know. so long. And man. I think we're going to stick to this part two of, of John Douglas making his way down to Columbia, South Carolina for this South Carolina Strange and Sinister. And I think Shreve's going to take my job now. He's going to take over the storytelling. <laughs> and I'm definitely not doing that. Those are some big shoes to fill. <laughs> well, as long as I don't have to do the editing. <laughs> we're good. All right. All right, everybody. Good night. Peace. Oh, that's a hot one. That's a spicy meatball.